Montebello Church sermons. I just keep replaying it in my mind over and over again. See, I was past my breaking point, and I had nothing left. I had actually signed up for this special kind of fitness class. They call it High Intensity Interval Training, or HIT for short, which is sometimes how that feels. They design these exercises to completely deplete you and then offer these small, very short five to ten second breaks that give you just enough rest so that you can keep going but never fully recover. It's, it feels a little bit like you're being held underwater and you're allowed to come up for a very short breath so that you don't die but you never really get a full breath and and I realized about two minutes into this hour-long class that I was in way, way over my head. But I soldiered on. And with about 15 to 10 minutes left in the class, I was completely depleted. My instructor was this perfect fit, sparkling personality kind of a guy who played all the right music, gave all the right motivation at just the right time to just keep us going just a little bit further. Despite all of his encouragement, despite everything working out perfectly, I was, I was just completely tapped out. I couldn't lift or pull or push one more time. Everybody else was done. They were watching me as I just lay there struggling, deeply humiliated. It was then that the instructor, instructor came over. And he bent down and mercifully and discreetly said, Okay, that's enough. You can stop now. The reason that I think it keeps playing in my mind is because we are all so exhausted. We are past our limit. The pandemic, the concern about getting people sick or getting others sick, the isolation, the incredible death toll numbers, the, the ruined graduation, the wrecked weddings, the devastated careers, the destroyed savings accounts, Kids being unable to say goodbye to their friends. And then there are these people that we deeply love and they have died. We're just struggling to figure out how to safely have some sort of funeral and say goodbye. We are past our limit. We are completely mentally and emotionally and spiritually exhausted. And I just keep longing for someone to just come up and say, okay, that's enough. You can stop now. You've done enough. We're all good. Take a break. Everything's taken care of. But that's not what's happening. Instead, at the height of our deep exhaustion, we see this video of one of the most intense acts of brutality and racism that we have ever seen before. And when we watch it, uh, for me, I just I wanted to, to yell and scream and rage and throw up all at the same time. And I wasn't the only one. Day after day, we see these marches and these cries of outrage and then violence and frustration and anger that just seems like it keeps on multiplying over and over again. We're just past our limit. We've overspent our emotional bank account. When that happens... We lash out, we rage, we become desperate, and inevitably, we become selfish. We stop, stop caring about anybody else because we're just hurting so badly. 
And I recognize the fact that it's not good to be in that kind of mental and emotional state because in that place we can do so much damage because we move from just needing relief to now demanding relief. And we don't care who we hurt. I want it, and I, and I want what I want, and I want it now, and I'm done looking out for everybody else. I, I'm through with it. And you can see this play out on the social media post. So few are listening and trying to understand because they're just hurting. They're raging inside. I've gotten so many phone calls from all these different sides that's frustrated with everybody else who's posting everything else. And I've learned over the years of marriage counseling that so often when both sides are so hurt and so angry, they can't even hear what the other is trying to say. And oftentimes in those places, you say things that you can't ever take back. But you may be wondering, well, what else can we do? Seriously, there is something that we can do. I've been joining the online Hispanic Bible study on Wednesday night since this thing's begun. This week we had a chance to talk about this hurt and this pain. And it was interesting because we actually looked at John 4. And in John 4, Jesus is traveling through this, this place called Samaria. And he's just exhausted. He can't take another step. So the disciples drop him off at this local watering hole, just this well out in the middle of nowhere. And in time, a Samaritan woman comes to the well to get something to drink. And so Jesus asks if he can have some of her water. And she is blown away. Because here is this Jewish man who's talking to her, and she's been treated so badly in the past. See, she is the embodiment of Jewish sin and compromise. To keep them from straying from God and worshiping foreign gods, the Hebrews were only supposed to marry other Hebrews. But, but Samaritans, these were the people whose parents had violated that and had ignored the warning and had mixed with people outside the Jewish people. They were, they were walking, talking examples of their parents' moral failure. And this woman, she just wasn't the result of an immoral relationship. She herself was right in the middle of one. And she could not get around in her head that this Jewish rabbi was even interacting with her, let alone having the kind of intimate, healing conversation that she ended up having with him. And according to the passage, it changes her life. She's so blown away that she races into town. She tells everybody else about him. And then it says this in verse 40. It says, So, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. Notice, Jesus invests in them. He was in their homes. He listened to their stories. He, he built relationships with them. He helped heal their hurts. He ate with them. He had meals with them. He loved them up close and personal, and it changed the entire town. Years ago, my dad and his good African-American pastor friend they had helped put together this massive evangelical racial reconciliation rally in Portland. And in fact, according to the Oregonian, it was the first one of its kind in Portland. And in the gathering, 
everybody said all the right words. They, they prayed the right prayers. The white pastors even went out of their way to apologize for their harmful neglect and for the way that they had allowed mistreatment to take place. And at the end of all of it, the religious leaders, they stood up and they made a vow that things would be different. But as it was, but as it was wrapping up, my dad's African-American pastor friend, he turned to him and said, Now, just watch this, Dwight. Not a single one of these men who just got done making these vows will ever take me out to a meal to eat together. And to this day, outside of my dad, none of those men reached out to him again. He went on to explain to my dad that, that our African-American brothers, that these people, that they, they don't need more posts, they don't need more vows, they don't need more words and chants. Wait, the Oregonian actually quoted my dad this way. He said that they don't want our money. They don't want our programs from the white churches. What they want is they want our love. They want our, our friendship. I believe that that kind of leadership is why God blesses us with these incredible, amazing Hispanic brothers and sisters. Well, let me repeat what Pastor Dwight's words are. They don't want our money or our programs. They want our love. They want our friendships. So we have to start wrestling through when was the last time we reached out to one of our Hispanic brothers and sisters, ate with them, invested in them to the place that, that if they are hurting or if they're frustrated or if they're discouraged or they're facing injustice or they just need something, that they would even think of calling us. Because it's not enough to just go, well, hey, look, I'm not a racist. That would be a little bit like standing in the middle of a forest fire and screaming, well, wait, hold on. I didn't start this fire. You can't just not be a racist. You need to pick up a shovel and help stop the fire. And yes, that does mean standing up for those that are being bullied and building relationships, serious, loving relationships. But there's also another step that's equally important. We need to deal with the racist. But here's the problem. Racism is a heart issue, and oftentimes we're unaware of how subtly it's bound up in our own hearts. And we don't know that it's even there until we listen and deeply examine the subtle assumptions that we've made in our hearts. But here's the trap. Here's the trap. And we talk about this all the time. It's the trap of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant gives you this rule. Hey, stop being racist. But it doesn't give you the power to keep that rule. And so we try to use guilt and shame and fear and intimidation and sometimes even violence. But all those tactics, they may stop the behavior for a period of time, but it doesn't change the heart. It just forces it underground. Racism is this heart sickness. So the only way to fix racism is to have a heart transformation. And that is what the church is all about. We can do something. For a moment, let's even examine Jesus' churches. Let's just take all the followers of Jesus and put them together in our church and just look around. Do you see any kind of problem? See, over there, we have the Samaritans sitting next to Nicodemus the Pharisee, next to the woman who's caught in adultery 
in the act of adultery. And she's sitting next to Martha with her jug of hand sanitizer. And next to them is the former tax collector whose job was to exploit his own people to help the corrupt, evil government. And he's sitting next to one of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot, which is just another way of saying that he was this radical political activist. They're sitting next to each other. And, and they're sitting next to a Roman soldier who had, been, who had commend, been commended for his noteworthy faith. And over there, we have an Ethiopian eunuch, and we have some recovering alcoholics, we have former prostitutes, ex-con artists, and even this former Pharisee hitman that caused the execution of a lot of the relatives of the people who are sitting in this church. Is it any wonder that Jesus' last prayer that he prayed in John 17 would include him saying that they all may be one father just as you are in me and also I am in you so that they may be in us so that the world will believe that you have sent me and then in verse 23 I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and even that you love them even as you have loved me no kidding. And God answered his prayer. And on the day of Pentecost, God creates a brand new race of people, a brand new humanity, who all share the same spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Your spirit, that's the part that makes you, you. If you take it away, all you have is this dead body. And, and we've been given this spirit of God, which flows from us, to from him to us and that's why paul writes there is now neither jew nor greek there is neither male nor female for you are all one in christ jesus and if if you're listening to the holy spirit and you're being obedient to him then you'll be in harmony acting like christ all together don't mistake paul for saying that he, we just need to all become clones. Paul clarifies this when he compares the church to a body. Many unique parts, but all working in harmony because the same spirit that is in the hand is also in the foot. They're completely and totally united. He goes on to point out the absurdity of one body part being at war with the other part and saying, well, I don't want to be a part of that body part. I'm just going to be with the rest of the people that are like me, the body parts that are like me. A body by its nature is supportive of the other body parts, so that if you step on a Lego in your bare feet, your whole entire body hurts and rushes to the other body parts to comfort them and defend it, because when one body part hurts, then the whole body feels it. And right now, we are hurting. So what does this body of Christ do? The body of Christ lays itself down for the salvation of the world together. We follow and do just like Christ did. This is the way that we need each other. This is when we need each other the most. Yet we're this socially distanced thing that's taking place, and that's this massive disadvantage. So I can give you some important guidelines. Don't ever lose sight of which kingdom that you belong to. Put more energy into prayer than into social media because that most definitely includes praying for your enemies. 
In fact, whoever you've been bad-mouthing or frustrated with, you need to be willing to die for them because you're following the one who died for you when you were still enemies with God. Put more energy into relationships than into watching the news because people last longer than today's news. Next, you yourself need to act like justly and to love mercy. Whatever, wherever God is walking, you need to walk with him humbly. And also, for some of you today, you turned in today and you were hoping that I would say some, something particular to the idiots who just don't get it. That oftentimes happens when I'm in marriage counseling and one spouse is hoping that I back them up and validate what they've been trying to get their spouse to realize all along. In fact, you wouldn't object to me using a two-by-four to their head when you're that frustrated with them. All I can tell you is that Jesus said that your focus cannot be on the speck in their eye until you remove the one in your own eye. I think he actually uses the phrase aboard, not just a speck out of your own eye. Sorry, but if you try and remove the speck from their eye before you take the board out of your own, you are going to do tremendous damage to them and they will pull away from you. When tensions are high, often is the wrong time to do a lot of correcting. Now is the time to weep with those who are weeping. So we want to just close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are broken hearted. We've been exposed to the reality of how ugly racism is, how broken we are as a nation, and how much we need a Savior. Change us, Lord. Please do not allow us to ever be the same. Please don't allow us to settle for a few marches or a couple of posts. Allow our broken hearts to drive us to you. Your church, your true church, looks out for one another, sacrifices for each other, because they realize that when one part of the body hurts, that all of the body hurts. But may we not stop there. May we go a step further and be willing to sacrifice for others outside of our church, outside of our group of friends, outside of our comfort zone. Lord, if there's ever a time that our nation needs to be loved through your body, it's right now. This is the time. Forgive us for not being sensitive enough or caring enough or bold enough. It has not been an accurate picture of who you are. Would you please forgive us and use us to bring healing to this community and to this nation. Finally, God, I pray for the leadership in this country. I pray that you would start with me. Start with our church, with your church. May we bring healing to the hurting, peace to the brokenhearted, freedom to those who are oppressed, and deliverance to those who are doing the oppressing. May these prayers translate into action, into support, into friendship with those that are not like us, so that we can be a complete body, and through them, see who you are more clearly, and praise you even more passionately. Montebello Church Sermons 